Welcome to the worship service this morning here at Providence Reformed Church, and we also welcome those who may be watching online. May the Lord bless us as we are gathered here to worship him today, and may it be our prayer that the preaching will be a blessing. We welcome our Pastor Dibbett to the pulpit as he leads our worship service this morning, and may the Holy Spirit strengthen you as you proclaim the word of God. Uh, There's one announcement this morning that we extend our condolences to the Mole family as Peter Mole's father passed away this past week. So we will also remember that in our congregational prayer. Our offering today is for the general fund, and our call to worship comes from Psalm 96, verses 7 to 9. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. And let us now sing our pre-service altar 257, verses 1 and 3. 257, verses 1 and 3. we gather together and worship this Lord's Day morning, we acknowledge that our help is in the name of the Lord, who has made the heavens and the earth. Amen. Hear God's greeting to us this morning. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ, in communion with the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Let us continue our worship with singing from Psalter 394, 394, where we'll sing all stanzas. Congregation, let us hear the law of God as we can find recorded for us in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh 
day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Jesus summarized the law in Matthew 22 with these words. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is a great first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In response to hearing God's law, let us sing Psalter 322. 322, and we'll sing the first two commandments. Uh, stanzas, especially considering how much a blessing there is in hearing and uh, receiving guidance and direction from the law of God, especially as we ask ourselves this question this morning in a certain way from Hebrews chapter 10, how shall we then live? And now I would argue it's not only for the young, but also for all of us. How shall the young direct their way? What light shall be their perfect guide? Thy word, O Lord, will safely lead if in its wisdom they confide. We'll sing stanza 1 and 2 of 322. unite our hearts in corporate prayer. Almighty God, we exclaim with the psalmist, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Lord, you have set your glory above the heavens. You are so transcendent. We cannot even comprehend and fathom how great you are. And yet you condescend so low to 
know man and to identify with man, even to take upon yourself as our Lord Jesus Christ, human flesh. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? And we exclaim in worship, O Lord, that your name is most excellent. And Lord, as we gather together in worship, we pray that you would be pleased to be with us, even as you have promised in your word that where two or three are gathered in your name, that you are with us in worship as a body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, then we stand in absolute awe and amazement that you would condescend to also even worship, be in worship with us. And so, Lord, we pray that our worship would be acceptable in your sight, that we, O Lord, would worship you in spirit and in truth, and that we would desire to glorify your name in all of our lives, but especially as we gather in corporate worship. Lord, instruct us as to how to live out of the fullness of your finished mediatorial work and also your ongoing mediatorial work as you make intercession for us even at the right hand of God. And so, Lord, as we call upon your name and we come boldly to your throne of grace, we pray that you would hear our prayer, that you would wash us and cleanse us and purify our prayers and present them to your Father in heaven through your finished work. Lord, grant us that we might draw near to you in this hour. Be pleased, O Lord, to be with us as a congregation also. Lord, that you would grant unto us all that we need in this life and for eternity. Lord, that that you, O Lord, would uh, be with those who are suffering from various afflictions, those who are suffering physically, emotionally, psychologically. Lord, you know each and every one who is going through spiritual challenges and what they are. And we pray, O Lord, that you would be near unto each one. Being with those who recently have undergone surgeries and procedures, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to grant healing and strength day by day. We especially lift up uh, Brother Bill Jansen, too, in this past week as he had the blessing of having a stent procedure. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless it and encourage him by it and give him renewed strength. And, and Lord, we pray that you would take away any uh, chest pains and various other afflictions that come along with this. And Lord, that in due time, you would be renewed in, in strength and wellness. We pray, O Lord, that you would continue to be with those who are going through ongoing challenges. Lord, all of the experiences that, that they endure, Lord, that, that you would be near unto them. Lord, that you would strengthen, them, strengthen their hands in the difficult times, that you would grant uh, your nearness uh, to them. We pray for 
Arlene Vleestra and, and also Chris Jansen and Bill Brunsfeld and Eddie Bargeman and Tina Vandenberg, Jeff Wagensfeld and Adrian Vendrongelen and Susan DeYoung. Lord, you know every need and what uh, needs they have. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, you would care uh, for them in the midst of the varying afflictions and ongoing issues in uh, their, their lives. We pray for our widows and widowers, Lord, that you would be especially near unto them and those who are grieving loss of loved ones, whether in the past or even more recently. Lord, we think even in the past, in the past day, the Lord, as you have uh, taken your servant, Albert Mole, unto yourself, Lord, after, after many years also of working in mission work in Bali. And, and Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to bless the work that was done in instructing others to preach the unsearchable riches of the gospel throughout Indonesia and throughout this world. Lord, we uh, pray that uh, even in our loss that we would, we would reflect on your gain in the loss of our brother Mole, we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to, in all of these things, to strengthen the family. We pray, Lord, for Peter and Hilda and their family among us, and we ask, Lord, that you would surround them with your care and your love and your encouragement as they plan for a funeral. And, and Lord, be especially with the uh, the youngest sibling to an adopted daughter from Indonesia, we pray, Lord, that you would be near unto her also in, in, these, in these times where she now feels alone. And we pray, Lord, that, that you would grant encouragement and comfort to the entire family. Lord, we think of those who have hidden burdens that we don't even know about, and we ask, Lord, that you would strengthen them to carry them faithfully as unto the Lord. And be pleased to be with our family units. And Lord, you know also those who are children who are struggling in various ways, maybe even wayward children. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would draw them back and that you would grant encouragement to uh, the children and the young people of our, of our congregation. Lord, work mightily in the midst of uh, these days. And that your light and the gospel would shine forth and that we uh, truly, O oh Lord, would, would draw near to you with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. O oh Lord, grant us that we might hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering and consider one another in order to stir one another up to love and good works. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time our offerings will be received for the Lord in his service. Uh, one offering this today and it will be for uh, the general fund. May God bless you and your gifts. Following our offering, we will sing Psalter uh, 349, 349, and we'll sing all four stanzas.
Dear congregation, let us turn in God's holy word to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll begin reading with verse 19. You can find it on page 1380 in your pew Bible. Hebrews 10, verse 19, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Our text will come from verses 19 through 25. But let us hear God's word. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose while he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while. And he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Amen. May God bless the reading of his precious and infallible word. May also bless the exposition of it. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our text begins with this word, therefore, and we've heard that already throughout the epistle of Hebrews, that when it begins with the word therefore, we need to ask what is it indeed therefore. 
And indeed, the author to Hebrews is, is not just looking down and formulating a, a wonderful theology that he set before us in these first ten chapters just for some kind of theoretical discussion, but rather he comes and he makes practical uh, applications because that is the purpose of his study of theology. In other words, he wants to move from doctrine to duty or creed to conduct or precept to practice or uh, instruction to exhortation, whatever, whatever you want to call it. What he's encouraging us to see is this is all how a Christian ought to live out of the fullness of Christ's mediatorial work. And really this section begins here, but really goes all the way through the end of this epistle of Hebrews. What he's doing is building, much like Paul did in Romans, building on this doctrine and then at the end making clear applications to what, what this all entails in our life. For example, children and young people, you know how you are going to school and and obviously you're not going to school just to just to go to school you have a goal in mind you're schooling and especially after high school if you go to any trade uh, school or or university or whatever you have an end goal in mind and you study for it and you might do an internship after afterwards and you're gaining knowledge and that knowledge is not just there to 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 impact your mind and have some kind of theory about work and what you're called to do, but it's there so that you can indeed practice it one day. And so also it is when we study God's Word, when we study theology, and we understand, especially as the author to Hebrews has set Christ before us so beautifully as the only mediator between God and man, a superior mediator to, to that of angels, to Aaron, to Moses, to Joshua, uh, to Melchizedek, and, and any other mediator that you would want to think about from the Old Testament, whether it's a prophet, priest, or king, Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And it's based on His mediatorial work that we can live out of His fullness. So I'd like to really think about then this question, how then shall we live, as Francis Schaeffer even wrote a book on, on this very subject. And he wrote a very interesting thought in regard to the importance of how the truths that we know and think about impact our life. And think about, think about this quote. What people are in their thought world determines how they act. The results of their thoughts flow, the, the, the results of their thought world flow through their fingers or from their tongues into the external world. This is true of either Michelangelo's chisel or is true of a dictator's sword. The thoughts impact their actions. And we are living in a time that really tells us that it doesn't matter so much what you believe, but rather how you believe it. 
the sincerity and the tolerance of other views, that's more important than truth itself. But to deny the truth, even even with the best intentions, is to rebelliously reject God and suffer eternal condemnation. How should we then live, says Schaefer? This word, therefore, teaches us then how we ought to live out of the fullness of Christ's mediatorial work as a Christian in this world. And he will go through all kinds of applications of this. This morning we'll look at how we are called to draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. But he'll give warnings at the end of this chapter about those who draw away from God, who do not draw near to God. But we are not like those, he said, but we believe to the saving of the soul. And then he goes through faith and what faith is and how we have faith even through the disciplining hand of God and and gives a host of practical life applications at the end of this epistle. But today we limit ourselves to verse 19 through 25 with the theme, draw near to God. We'll see that in, in three thoughts. That we'll draw near, we need to draw near to God through full access that's been given through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we do so by faith. First of all, then, through full access, by faith. Secondly, in full hope. And thirdly, unto a full life. What I mean there is a full life of love within the family of God or the body of Christ. Draw near to God through full access that has been granted through the media, Christ's mediatorial work by faith. Let's see how that plays out here as we read the first few verses of our text. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near unto him. This access is by faith. Faith in what Jesus Christ has done. The author here assumes this in its very address to them, therefore, brethren. He assumes that his hearers have a faith which gives a confidence to their divine access to God. They can come confidently to the Lord Jesus Christ through His crucified body. And that's what he's saying, is that we have this access into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. That way in which he has consecrated for us, he has gone behind the veil as we saw in chapter 10. That he has rent that veil even when he died on the cross. And now he provides that way that we can come boldly unto his throne of grace as we already have seen in Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us then come boldly to that throne of grace with confidence. Let us do so. We might have help and grace in our times of need. 
This isn't like the Old Testament way that provides this access through a high priest that couldn't really fully uh, bring them into the presence of God, but this is through Jesus, a new and living way. A new and living way. It's a new way, not like the old way of the Old Testament, but it's a living way because Jesus lives forever to secure this position. And we can have to come to God for He sits at the right hand of God to be our interceding high priest. And that comes through living faith. Yes, a certain knowledge of this way unto God through Jesus Christ, but also an assured confidence that there is a way through Jesus Christ to come to His throne of grace. And so we have this access to God by faith in Jesus Christ. Not only in what He has done, but what He continues to do. What He continues to do. Notice in verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God. Not that we had a high priest over the house of God, but having, currently having at the right hand of God, a high priest who continually makes intercession for us, who's our advocate at the right hand of God. I think of the Old Testament as Aaron would bear the names of the people on, on his shoulders. And, and it was like a memorial before God. It was close to his heart. It was on his breastplate. And, and as he bore the names of Israel's sons, the, the Israelites, he would take them to God because they would be close to his heart. But Jesus has... Our very names, our bodies and souls at the very center of His being. For we are in Him by faith and and He makes intercession for us as He ever lives at the right hand of God. What a great security there is in these truths. That there is a way to God through Jesus Christ and that He ever lives to make intercession for us as our high priest. As a matter of fact, if you think about Romans chapter 8 and you think, if God before us, who can be against us? That's the encouragement and the security and the motivation that this gives to live out of that confidence. Once uh, early church Saint Chrysostom came before the Roman Empire, Emperor. And the Roman Emperor threatened him with banishment and all kinds of punishments if he remained a Christian. And Chrysostom replied, You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. The Emperor says, But I will slay you. Chrysostom says, No, you cannot. For my life is hid with Christ in God. The emperor says, I will take away your treasures. No, says Christosom, you cannot take away my treasures here because my treasures are in heaven and that's where my heart is. He says, but I will drive you away from man so you will have no friend left. And Christosom says, no, you can't for I have a friend in heaven 
whom you cannot separate me from. I defy you, emperor, for there is nothing you can do to hurt me. That's the confidence it gives to someone who is in great trial, knowing that they have access to the Father by faith. And that gives us that confidence to draw near to God, to draw near to Him in a life of worship, a life of worship. That's what we're called to when we are called to draw near to God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Let us do so in worship. It is one of the highest privileges and the most central duty of any Christian. We are made, we are recreated in the image of God to worship God. He demands our worship. And worship is not only glorifying to God, but also even beneficial for us spiritually. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, It is only when I am near to God in Christ that I may know my sins are forgiven, to feel His love. I know I'm His child and enjoy the priceless blessings of peace with God and peace within and peace with others. I am aware of His love and I am given a joy that the world can neither give nor take away. There's this whole aspect of personal, experiential worship that must permeate every Christian's life seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And by worship, He's not only referring to personal and experiential worship, but but also to the corporate worship as we find in verse 24 and 25. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. But we'll save that especially for our third point. But let us keep that also in our minds as we think about worship generally and personally, experientially, but also corporately as one body. And really what we're finding here in Hebrews 10 verse 22 is showing us that we are called to draw near to God in worship in in a specific way. A specific way. First of all, he tells us to do so with a true heart. A true heart. And that's a heart that functions like God intended it to when he recreated us. It's a, a whole inner disposition it's a, it's a life that flows from our innermost being that's completely genuine. That's what true means, doesn't it? Genuine. It's, it's, something, it's something that flows out of our heart that's genuine and authentic. We, uh, we approach Him and worship with a true heart. But secondly, He says, in full assurance of faith. With an unwavering trust in God and an unwavering trust in His promises, a wavering trust in Christ's finished work. We come to Him in full assurance of faith. With our, thirdly, we see, with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Deals with the reality of our sinfulness and the need for cleansing. 
All of the Old Testament sacrifices and everything else failed because none of them could clear their conscience that they were left with a guilty conscience no matter how much blood was spilt of the animals. But through one's blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary, we are set free from the burden of guilt and our hearts are freed from that burden because we have a clear conscience. And lastly, it says we must worship not only having our hearts sprinkled clean from a, an evil conscience, but also our bodies washed with pure water. What, is that, what does that signify in there? Well, it certainly has a reference to baptism. And yet, it's not necessarily baptism itself, but it's what baptism points to and symbolizes that spiritual renewal that's given by the work of the Holy Spirit. As we find in the chapters before, that that promise of the new covenant. That indeed God will grant His Holy Spirit to us. And that He will put His laws upon our hearts and in our minds. That we will know indeed that our sins are forgiven. and, And so also here, our bodies washed with this pure water. As we find in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. I will cleanse you from your idols and your idol worship. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is the way to draw near to God in worship. Seven days a week and every day. But especially also on the Lord's Day. And we do so by secondly drawing near to God in full hope, full hope of Christ's mediatorial work. We do so by faith as we draw near it, and yet also through a full hope, full hope. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It flows naturally out of this access to God that we have by faith that we would hold fast to that confession of our hope. What is hope? Some people might say, well, hope is just, like the saying goes, I hope it's a nice, warm, sunny day. But you don't know whether it's going to for sure be a nice, warm, sunny day. So you kind of have this hope, but you don't have a huge amount of expectation. It could be 50-50, unless you maybe heard the forecast or something, and you might say, well, I have a pretty reasonable hope that, that indeed it will be a nice, sunny, warm day today. But a Christian doesn't have that kind of hope. A Christian has a hope that has substance and foundation. It's not a a hope like a maybe, but it's one with certainty. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite of the hopelessness of this world. The hopelessness of secularism that has permeated our day. One secularist wrote, 
the labors of the ages, all the devotions, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of our solar system. Since the only firm foundation we have is kind of an unyielding despair. That's hopelessness. That's what the world has to offer. But what does a Christian live for? As a matter of fact, we could even back up a little bit and think about what do people live for? As a matter of fact, even though secularism has permeated our society and this hopelessness of of what it has to offer, yet people who are created in the image of God do have an innate knowledge and desire to live for something. They're just chasing all the wrong things. One professor, New York University, did a survey with 3,000 people asking the question, what have you to live for? And he was shocked to discover that 94% of them were simply enduring the present while waiting for the future, waiting for something to happen, waiting for next year, waiting for a better time, waiting for someone to die so you can collect your inheritance, or waiting for tomorrow. There was always a waiting for something that would hopefully come, but had no lasting eternal hope. As a Christian, what are you living for? You see, a Christian's hope has substance. It's grounded in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's grounded in His life. It's grounded in His death. It's grounded in His, his resurrection, His ascension, His session at the right hand of God. It's grounded in the fact that even today, He is making intercession for us at the right hand of God. And so we hold fast We hold fast to that confession of our hope without wavering. We hold fast like an anchor that we saw that would keep you from drifting away in Hebrews 2. Or that anchor that is anchored in heaven in Hebrews chapter 6 that we saw. This is an anchor that we have within the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. And when all of the winds of this world and all the winds of Our life here below cause us to feel hopeless in any way or filled with dismay. We can know that our anchor is in heaven and that we will never be loosed from that position that Christ is granted at the right hand of God. Christians are called to hold fast. Hold fast to this anchor of hope. Hold fast. And in doing so, we are drawing near to God. We are worshiping God in truth. Not hopelessness, but in truth. That's why he says, let's hold fast. The confession of our hope. The confession of our hope. That that truth of our hope. And we know how that's been pointed out several times already in the, in, in the, in the epistle to Hebrews. In Hebrews 3, verse 6, he already wrote that we are in Christ's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in, in our hope, really. In Hebrews 3, verse 14, we, we share in Christ if indeed we hold our 
confidence to the end. Verse 4, verse 14. Because we have this high priest who is in heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Our confession must not waver, but it must be grounded in Jesus Christ. For he who promises is faithful. He is faithful. His promises are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. He's faithful to all of His promises that were in the Old Testament. He's faithful to His Word. He's faithful to the work of the, in the, in and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see His faithfulness all around us. And we have a reason for the hope that lies within us. We have an answer for those who ask it of us. This is the substance of our faith. And we hold fast to that hope. The early church was also tested and even tortured and tormented. Later on in this chapter, he's commending them for their endurance to do the will of God. Their endurance to to be reproached and to go through all kinds of tribulations and all kinds of trials. He, He encourages them in them. And here also he's showing that even in the early church, those who were tortured to death, all because they refused to bend the knee to Caesar and to say, Caesar is Lord. They had a better hope. Their hope was not in Caesar. Their hope was in God. Their hope was in the Lord. He was, through Jesus, their king. And so they could not say, Caesar is Lord. They had an unwavering devotion to the gospel. They had an unwavering devotion to Christ. Let us never compromise this unwavering devotion. Let us hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to the gospel promises. Hold fast to Christ. Thirdly, we see that we are called to draw near to God not only through this full access by faith and full hope, but unto a full life, a full life in Christ's mediatorial work. You might wonder why in the world I, I title this a full life. But just think about a full life, a full life of love within the body of Christ as I read verse 24 and 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Indeed, we find the first call in Hebrews is one of faith. United to Christ, having access to God, Secondly, having hope. Hope that will not leave us ashamed. But thirdly, a life of love. 
You already can understand then maybe where I'm going with this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, we have this faith and hope and love set before us so beautifully. When we see the whole body of Christ as one body, all working together, fit together, caring for the needs of one another, some having varying gifts and so on. And, and he begins chapter 13 with saying, you know, you could have faith and all the faith in the world. You could be the most faithful even in the world. And, and yet you would be like a tinkling symbol. You would be empty and have nothing if you do not have love. You see, what's happening here is to have a full life, you've got to have faith and you've got to hold on to those promises and you've got to have a full life of love within the body. That's why he goes even, and especially goes from the personal and experiential to even the corporate here to show that this is indeed the body of Christ and the life of the body of Christ. This certainly doesn't mean some kind of individualism. As a matter of fact, the exhortation for us to, to gather is, is the very word synagogue. And synagogue means uh, the, these Old Testament gatherings of the church and the word would be brought in these formal gatherings of believers in, in what they would call their worship services. And this was carried on into the New Testament. This synagoguing together, this worshiping together as a body of believers is a life, a full life of the bride of Christ through Jesus' mediatorial work. And even if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, it says faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. But it doesn't begin with love. It begins with the truth. It begins with faith and this access to God. It begins in hope, in that confidence in God. And it ends in a life of love in the body of Christ. And so what these verses are doing is summoning us to a, a life of a loving community. William Lane writes in his commentary that it's the continued care for one another that finds an expression in love and good works and a mutual encouragement that active participation in the gatherings of the community makes possible. It's impossible without the corporate gatherings, he goes on to say. What does this all entail? Well, notice how our text says this. Let us, first of all, consider one another. What does it mean to consider one another? It has to do with our thinking. Our thinking. And we are to think about one another. You see how it's so different for someone who is 
has not been touched by the grace of God and does not know the power of Christ's mediatorial work, what does he do? He thinks about himself. She thinks about him herself rather than others. It's, here he's saying, consider one another. Consider whether they're discouraged. Consider what their temptations might be. Consider how they might be doubting. Consider the challenges that they're going through in life. Because when we do not consider one another, and we are selfish, and we come to church, and we come in worship and fellowship, and we're not considering one another, all we are is a consumer type of a religion. Plain and simple without first of all considering one another, and if we're only considering ourselves, then we're always wanting and trying to receive and never being a blessing and giving and considering one another. It doesn't say and go on to say, stir yourself up to good works. No, it says, stir one another up to good works. This word stir up means to provoke, to be an irritant, I bet you never thought of that. But you never thought that going into the fellowship hall after church, that your goal as a Christian would be to irritate someone. I don't think that's necessarily the reason for our fellowship. But doesn't also the preaching of God's Word sometimes irritate us? I hope it does. I hope when I preach the word that you go home irritated by the message. Not necessarily irritated by me, but irritated by the word of God because it convicted you and it stopped you. And so also in our irritation of others and provoking others, stirring one another up to, to good works, it's for good. Not to be judgmental about people, but, but to be caring, a positive kind of irritant. How do you provoke others, stir one another up to good works? Does your counsel toward others cut across the grain of what the world would say? Or does it capitulate with what the world would say? Does it press home the word of God? Does it press home the promises of God? Does your behavior, does it fit and model the Word of God for weaker believers among us? Are we stirring up one another to good works, to love and good works? There's a final exhortation that he has here. He also says, and I'm, I'm skipping a, a, a phrase here, and I'll get back to it, but exhorting one another exhorting one another. What does it mean to exhort? Uh, the Greek word there is para, parakaleo. And we know of the word paraclete, right? The Holy Spirit is called a paraclete. It's someone to speak in a way and encourage us. One who comes alongside us. And that's, that's why it's often translated the helper will come. The paraclete will come. And so our words not only ought to stir up and be a little bit irritating, but one that comes alongside to encourage one another, to bear the load with one another, 
through prayer, through companionship, to share the convictions that, that you have in your heart based upon the Word of God, to show your loving care for one another. We've seen this already in, in Hebrews, haven't we? Hebrews chapter 3. Exhort one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need each other. Christians need Christians, just like the soldiers need one another in the battlefield. We can't be lone rangers. And the author to Hebrews reminds us that indeed we ought never to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. That provides excellent reasons for the church to gather in worship and for various ministries within the church, whether it be prayer meetings or men's groups, women's groups, youth ministries, whatever they might be, and we would gather together, but none as important as the corporate gathering in worship. And people have countless reasons to stay away from church. That's not a new problem. It's a problem for the early Christians and the author to Hebrews was writing to. His Jewish church possibly had a fall off due to persecution, due to be separated from their society, due to apostasy, due to ignorance or simply arrogance, whatever it would be. Many people find reasons to be absent from church. And we don't have a lot of the reasons that I just listed. But maybe some of our reasons is simply laziness in our culture today. There's no good reason for a Christian not to forego church attendance. I'll give you five reasons for that. The first reason is Christ is present with His church when they gather and worship. I don't know if I can fully comprehend what that means. At Christ has promised where two or three are gathered, He will be in the midst of them. And when we read in the book of Revelation that Christ is walking through those candlesticks, He's with His church, He's holding the seven stars in His right hand, He's caring for His church, even if it is true that a person doesn't have to go to church to be a Christian, and I'm not saying that's true, even if it is true, that he doesn't have to go to church to be a Christian, we could also consider that he doesn't have to go home to be married either. I think in both cases you understand 
If you never go to your home and you're married to your spouse, you're not going to have a good relationship. You're not going to be present with one another. And Christ is pleased to dwell with his people in corporate worship. To maintain a good relationship with him. This is where we ought to be. And to maintain a good relationship with one another. This is where we ought to be. Secondly, you simply can't have the same level of doxology in private worship or even family worship. When we absent ourselves from the worship of God, we lose something of the ability to glorify God in worship. I think that would also be true of someone who went to a symphony or an orchestra or some kind of concert of some sort, and you're, you're gathered there to, to hear the whole of it, and, and you just couldn't put all the pieces together to have the same effect, and so it is with worship. Corporate worship provides a, a context where our hearts are enlivened with passion, and joy as we sing God's praises, as we hear His Word. And He comes with unique power through the preaching of His Word that's not found anywhere else. Martin Luther wrote, At home in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through in worship. Thirdly, worship gives us biblical instruction. It takes theology and doctrine, and it helps us to understand it. And Paul writes in Philippians, or sorry, Ephesians 3, verse 18, he's praying for the church of Ephesus that they may have power together with all the saints to grasp and to know what, what that surpassing knowledge and the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Great truths that warm our hearts and encourage us and motivate us to go forward in biblical study and instruction is done in the assembly of Christ's church. Fourthly, spiritual benefit. It's the primary means of salvation. The preaching of God's Word in the worship service. It's also the primary means of spiritual growth and development. As a matter of fact, the virtue of love in, in, in Deuteronomy and throughout Genesis through Deuteronomy, it requires others for um, life and development and, and full faith and hope and love. Even if you could th- theoretically develop faith on your own and, and hold on to hope on your own, love is impossible to have on your own. It's a communal activity and we receive spiritual benefit in and through 
this fellowship and the preaching of God's word. And lastly, the day is approaching. And do so even more as you see the day approaching. Jesus is coming again. He is coming again. The author here is setting the stage for some serious warnings that flow from these verses. That we'll see next week. But let's think about the positive of Christ coming again. How the church of the Lord Jesus Christ can be in faithful anticipation of our Lord's coming. It ought to characterize us as a church. We ought to be praying and crying out, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. As we draw near to God in worship, our hearts ought to be begging and longing, Lord, draw near to us. But also, we look forward to that day when we can draw near to you, either through our death or through your coming again as we look earnestly to the eastern skies to see if our Lord is coming. We can encourage one another in the assembly through the resurrection of Jesus, but also knowing His second coming. Let us provoke one another. Yes, consider one another, pray for one another, stir up one another. Set an example for one another. Share God's word with one another. Exhort one another to be a true encourager with all grace and love toward one another. You see, Hebrews 10, 19-25 is not some insignificant text for our day. It has huge significance upon us today. And may we hold fast in faith to that only way of access to the Lord Jesus, through the Lord Jesus Christ, unto God. And hold fast to the confession of our hope. And let us love, love one another by assembling together with one another to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks for your word, which is the power of God unto salvation. We give thanks for the exhortations in your word, even though they make us feel uncomfortable sometimes and maybe even slightly irritated. Lord, you know the way in which you work among your people by your spirit. And so, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to convict us. Convict us of sin and cause us to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would draw near unto you through him, holding fast our hope without wavering. Lord, we pray that you would bless also the Sunday school instruction, the catechism instruction, and bring us back this afternoon to gather in worship for a second time this Lord's Day. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with Brother Pastor Najib Four too as he leads us in worship. Lord, 
Encourage him also as he brings your word to us. And encourage us through it as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us sing Psalter 31. Psalter 31 will sing stanza 1, 2, and 6, and 7.
Our doxology be 251, stanza 1 and 3, following the benediction. Receive the blessing of the Lord and go to your homes in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.